Good morning. Morning, welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's last Wednesday of January, the 29th of 2013. Uh, we will start next month in February with uh, another talk from a pediatric hospitalist uh, with an enticing talk called Choosing Wisely in Pediatrics, Less is Best. We will um, have on Thursday night another stellar performance or stellar uh, educational session with Dr. Gwill and Dr. Smith updating us on the latest thinking on avoiding unnecessary prescription of antibiotics for upper respiratory infections, ears, sinuses, and lungs. That's as part of our CHAD regional faculty meeting that will be from 5.15 to 8 o'clock on Thursday evening. Uh, please RSVP with the emails that you'll be getting soon. Uh, during that, we'll have uh, some visitors, including uh, Drs. LeBlanc. Dr. Paris, Steve LeBlanc, and Dr. Weinstein will be uh, updating us on the latest thinking uh, in terms of regional planning, and we're at, we're at with that. So we'll have dinner as well. So hope to see a big crowd, I think, in this room on Thursday evening. Um, Today for Grand Rounds, we have, we've been waiting for Adam, we've been stalling because we have a colleague of Adam Weinstein from Yale who, who trained with him both in residency and when Adam was a fellow. But the greatest claim to fame that Dr. Grossman shares is that actually Adam was a successful softball coach leading the team that Matt was on to championships in the hospital league at Yale, which has not successfully been recreated since Adam joined us. Uh, Matt says he is the probably the biggest player on the softball team, so um, so Adam probably worked some magic. But um, Dr. Grossman joins us today. He was invited by Dr. Um, Ralston to, to speak. He, as I said, uh, trained at Yale in his internship and in, uh, residency after receiving his uh, undergraduate degree at Swarthmore, Co Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania with distinction. He's continued on at Yale where he's an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and has been the medical director of the infant toddler unit uh, since 2006 and uh, has a topic that's really, uh, as I mentioned, uh, uh, interesting to folks who are working here, Bonnie Whalen, Allison Holmes, who's right there, um, ahead of Matthew. So thanks, Dr. Grossman, and I will get out of your way. Hi, everybody. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about NAS today, neonatal abstinence syndrome, which I think a lot of you guys have dealt with, but it may may not be something that is in everybody's ballywick, but hopefully there'll be uh, something you can draw from our, our approach to it um, with whatever you're doing. So we're going to define what it is, we'll examine some of the approaches, and but most of the time we're going to spend reviewing kind of our experience with it at Yale. Um, so drugs are a problem. Um, <laughs> Lots of people are, use drugs, and a lot of those people are women, and some of those women end up getting pregnant. And so that's where we come in. So, and my experience with addiction is mostly from either the wire or from train spotting. So, um, but basically, um, most of the kids that we're, that we're dealing with um, are opiate withdrawers, and, and kids can withdraw from all sorts of drugs, but the main one is opiates, and what we tend to focus on mostly is uh, kids who are in, uh, the kids that are born in mothers who are in treatment plans. In New Haven, that mostly methadone, but a little bit of Suboxone. And it turns out that those kids in those programs actually uh, postnatally do, do a little bit worse in terms of withdrawal than kids who are exposed to either prescription drugs or even heroin. Uh, so that tends to be more of our focus. And, it's been a growing uh, thing for us. For, from 2003 to 2005, we averaged about 14 cases a year uh, that of kids exposed to methadone or Suboxone. And in the last three years, we've averaged 41 cases a year, uh, of mostly methadone, but now a lot more Suboxone as well. Um, and so withdrawal, the, the mechanism of action is basically um, the opiates bind in the locus ceruleus, and they uh, inhibit the production of cyclic AMP which eventually decreases the production of norepinephrine. And uh, the locus ceruleus then sort of adjusts and it, to maintain homeostasis. And once, that, once the opiate is gone, and remember, when they're in a treatment program, they're essentially, they're, they always are, are bathed in an opiate. Once that's gone, there's this 
norepinephrine overload. And then in experimental models, that overload coincides with withdrawal symptoms. So that's mostly what we're dealing with. Um, and so what do we do about it? So one of the things we do is try to figure out when they're having withdrawal symptoms. And this, or this, this is very similar to what you guys use here. It's a modified version of a Finnegan scale, which helps to look at what the symptoms are. If dealing with, you can, it's a little hard to read, but kids will have things like hypertonicity. They'll have tremors. They'll do a lot of yawning and sneezing. They'll be irritable. They'll have difficulty feeding. They'll have diarrhea. It's actually a lot of the same symptoms that adults will have um, as well. So it's, it's just the same process, basically. And there's a whole list of it. And when they came up with the Finnegan scoring system, they just they figured out there were about 31 things they could they could look at. And since that's been pared down a little bit over time. But again, this is something, this is basically what we use at our hospital, and again, I think what you use as well. Um, so in terms of, um, then what do we do about it? So the, the management you're supposed to do for this is you're supposed to keep the, the environment, a sort of low simulation environment. You're supposed to swaddle kids, uh, do some soothing techniques, and then the, the main uh, approach is usually medication. And that's the indicators for medication are if the kid's doing really poorly, if they're having seizures, if there's poor feeding. But usually most people will use uh, something based on a scoring tool. And, and the, the general approach is if there's three scores in a row that are greater than eight as you add these up, then you end up starting a medication. And the AAP recommends using a medication that's in the same class. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is how in our management of it, how, how we sort of evolved from, from 2003, having a, a length of stay of about 28 days down to where we are today, where our length of stay is, is closer to 13 or 14 days. So I'm going to talk about that experience a little bit. All right, so in, in our, we, we've been dealing with this for quite a long time at Yale uh, since the 70s. And, and we've gone through a, a number of different uh, treatment options. So we started using. Uh, paragoric, which has opium in it, but also has lots of other fun things like alcohol and camphor and all these other toxins. So that sort of fell appropriately fell out of favor and was a, replaced by just tincture of opium, so just opium. So we used that for a while in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, and there's lots of studies. And most of the studies you'll see related to management of NES, they, they look at uh, trying to find what the right medication is. What's the best medication? to decrease length of stay or length of treatment or a combination of medications. So this study looked at compared, um, compared morphine and tincture of opium and found it to be essentially equivalent. And we eventually moved on to morphine, which is basically just a, a change from our pharmacy. We stopped carrying tincture of opium, so we, we moved to morphine. Um, and this was, uh, this was a, and actually in the 70s we had used phenobarbital. And this study compared phenobarbital and morphine and found, a, and this was out of uh, Glasgow, and it found a significant decrease in length of stay for the morphine group compared to the phenobarbital group. Um, and there's also uh, the, the medication that's, that's been starting to use a lot more is actually methadone. And so there's another study comparing uh, morphine and methadone and, and didn't find any significant difference in length of stay or length of treatment with those. Um, what we do, and I think what you guys do as well, is if the treatment isn't working well, we add phenobarbital to it. And this is a study from Brown, which is, shows a, had a, sort of a significant decrease in length of stay when phenobarbital was added to tincture of opium. Um, and that's what we, we don't do it regularly, but if, if we're, we've used a lot of morphine and we're sort of maxed out on that um, by our standards, then we will add phenobarbital. Um, and about uh, a couple of months before I started, uh, as a hospitalist, and I and I got involved in this because I went to went to residency at Yale, and then couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. and needed a job, and we just started a hospitalist program. And there was a guy who had uh, we, we hired two hospitalists, and our service time the, the concept of on and off service didn't really exist. We were on service for 50 weeks a year, so surprisingly, they had trouble hiring an experienced hospitalist. Um, so when I came in, there was, a, there was a guy who was doing it for a year and went off to fellowship. And so I was uh, in charge of the infant toddler units. So uh, our kids, th these kids would end up, they would start in the NICU, but almost all of them would end up on the infant toddler unit. And we had a, a mix, and we still do, of, of community pediatricians who will take care of their patients and our hospitalist patients, so about 50-50, except for these patients. They dump all of these patients in the hospital service. So I took care of many, many of these patients. Um, and it wasn't any thing that I was terribly interested in. I felt, and, and didn't, didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it in the beginning, 
So we had a protocol, and actually felt better. Uh, Dr. Whalen, I don't know if she's here, uh, wrote a commentary in the Hospital of Pediatrics and said, nobody goes into pediatrics because they're interested in addiction. So that made me feel a little bit better, because it's not really <laughs> something, if you're, if you're interested in that, you're going to do something different. Um, so before, just before I started, um, my predecessor had uh, seen an abstract, which took a while. It ended up coming out in 2009. This was in, in 2006, that looked at um, when they added clonidine to tincture of opium, that that um, significantly decreased the length of stay. And clonidine, it does. There is some some. Uh, it does make some sense. That's that's a. Uh, it does decrease norepinephrine release in the. Um, in the brain, so it, it is actually sort of a specific treatment. Phenobarbital, not really a specific treatment, sort of just a central nervous system depressant. It's, it doesn't treat all of the symptoms, but it tends to just sort of calm down a lot of the irritability. Um, so that's kind of where we were. And um, so we had that length of stay, about 28 days, and we had a protocol that was essentially a following the Finnegan approach, which, which came out in 1975. Our kids, the babies were born, they knew there was a prenatal, um, exposure to, to methadone or any opiate, they were immediately taken to our neonatal intensive care unit to monitor for signs of withdrawal. And they used that, that Finnegan scoring tool that you saw. And uh, they developed uh, signs of withdrawal and their scores, they had three scores in a row that were greater than eight or one or two that were greater than 12. And they would be started on morphine. And then and clonidine was added. One of the problems with clonidine is it, is it causes a uh, uh, it, can, it can cause bradycardia. And we actually, about 40% of the kids who were started on clonidine in our hospital, we stopped because they have bradycardia. So it's not something we have to use all the time. Um, and then they're managed in the NICU for a period of time. Uh, once they feel like they get control of it or if they're running out of space, then they'll transfer <laughs> them up to the floor. There wasn't really a standard of really getting control. And, um, and so we would see them, some kids would come up four weeks old and some would come up when they were four days old. Uh, but most of them, about at, at this early on, about 75 or 80 percent, if not more, would end up uh, up on the floor, and then we would take care of them then. And so we had some changes. And as I felt like I was sort of meant to be a hospitalist, because I was really frustrated. I really want the goal is to just get kids out of the hospital. I feel like that's sort of the, the first lesson you learn as a hospitalist. So uh, our, our the way we were we were our protocol had for weaning was that you would drop the morphine by 10 percent of the highest dose every 48 hours. Um, and I think that sort of standard comes from or the Finnegan approach, and it's something we've been doing for uh, 30 years. Um, so, but you would sit, you see these kids who seemed like they were fine, and you were supposed to wait another day before you could drop the medication. So we started fudging that a little bit. Um, and we started just being a little more aggressive and dropping it. And we saw a, a, um, we saw a decrease in our length of stay from 2003 to 2006. And I started in July 2006. And I was and mostly, I think this is due to both clonidine and to just a little bit of impatience at waiting for eight hours to weaning these kids. So this was a significant decrease in length of stay from about 28 days to 22 days. And it was statistically significant. So, so that was nice. Um, so felt, felt good about that. But it reminded me of, of this story. So this is uh, in 1902, shipbuilders were sort of faced with a, with a, with a tough situation. Uh, schooner, these big sailboats were, were really being replaced by steam engines. So shipbuilders had a choice. They could try to maximize what they were doing in sort of an outdated system, or they could adapt. Um, and this is this ship's called the Thomas W. Lawson. It's the only seven-masted sailboat ever built. And this was sort of the last effort for sailing vessels to compete with steam engines. And just as a spoiler alert, it, it didn't work. So, um, and so I felt that's sort of where we were. We had sort of maximized what we could do with this current approach and current thinking. And if we wanted to do any better and treat these kids, if there was ways to treat these kids better, then we needed to do, we needed to really change our paradigm for this. We needed to make a shift. So, but we had had the success. And, and again, this wasn't something that I paid a lot of attention to. It was kind of easy. We had a protocol. And they came to the floor. And I think Adam, we were talking about this uh, yesterday, and Adam was joking about it, that the residents, you know, I think one of the attendings would take the NAS scores and, and buy lottery tickets with the numbers. Um, <laughs> and when you, when you were on, on rounds, the presentations were, all right, did the weight go up and down, up or down? What were the scores? Do we go up and down, up or down on the medication? That was kind of it. That was, sort of, that was the approach. They were pretty easy. They were on this protocol. You don't have to worry about them too much. Um, so, 
so I, but I, uh, so, so one of the community hospitals asked me to, to talk about it because they were, they were having some trouble figuring out how to manage these kids. So I ended up doing, I ended up talking about it and doing a little more of a literature search and, and looking at the medications a little bit more and looking at these studies. So these are, these are sort of the studies that I mentioned when I started to look at it and look at the uh, Cochrane reviews on it. So this is tincture of opium when you added clonidine. This was just for methadone kids, this one. The length of treatment went from 17 days to 12 days. I'm going to present stuff that I talked about was going to, be, going to be mostly length of stay. When we treat the kids, it usually there's usually an extra day on the end and an extra three or four days in the beginning. So they had 17 days versus 12 days. Um, the morphine versus phenobarbital one, uh, the morphine was eight days of treatment. The phenobarbital was 12 days. Morphine versus opium, uh, this was the one that was equivalent, um, 30 days versus 27 days. Opium, uh, when you add the phenobarbital, this was the one that was the most highly significant. The, the Cochrane really liked this one. 70 days to 38 days. So they, they dropped 41 days off of their length of stay by adding phenobarbital, which is great. I mean, for, a, for an internal quality improvement approach, that's, that's tremendous. Um, so and the other one, comparing methadone versus morphine, 36 days versus 40 days. So you start to read these, and you guys are starting to get the picture. So let's look. They're supposed to be the same patients, essentially. They're all, they're 75% or so methadone exposed. The rest are opiate. And you have these length of states that are 17 days, 27 days, and 79 days. And you look at morphine, 8 days, 30 days, and 40 days. So, so something doesn't seem quite right there. And so, um, so maybe it's not just the medications we're dealing with. And if you remember in the beginning, I mentioned there were actually three things you do to treat this. First is bringing a low stimulation environment. Second is doing uh, soothing techniques, swaddling, feeding on demand, really tending to the baby. Early response to cry is really important. Um, but uh, that, so maybe those are actually a little more important. But nobody really, uh, everybody who writes a review article or anything takes the same approach I do. They kind of mention that and then jump right to the medication because that's the exciting part. Can we find the right medication to do this? And at this time, as I was reading, as we were being, um, there was a multi-centered study that we wanted to involve us to compare morphine and methadone to see if we could for once finally figure out what the right medication was. And after kind of going through this, I didn't want to be a part of this because I, I started to think that maybe this really wasn't it. And if you look at the AAP guidelines, they do the same thing. They talk about the three approaches. So this is them talking about the first two, the environment and parental involvement. That's, they spend 54 words on that. And then on the medication part, they spend <laughs> 1,652 words. So same kind of concept. So, so we're thinking, wow, this, this seems to be, maybe we're just missing the boat on this. And so what, what is it? it? Is there a different way to treat these kids? Can we do better, better by these kids? Um, so, uh, so I, I started to think about that a lot and, and, and look, so well, what, what does it look like when our kids go to the NICU? Because remember, all of our kids go right to the NICU. So what's our NICU look like? Well, so first of all, the other thing, there's a couple other things that, that, that sort of make you scratch your head. Like when you look at how many kids actually end up getting treated with medication, and the range is from somewhere in the 40, 40s, or even in some studies as low as like 14% up to 100%. So that also seems a little bit strange. That that's an awful lot of variation. And we looked at our um, how many kids that we have exposed to methadone. Again, these are just the methadone-exposed ones, because again, the ones who are who come with a with a diagnostic code of NAS, they might have the mother might have gotten two doses of oxycodone, and they're going to be and that's that's not the same as somebody who's been conceived on methadone, basically. So um, so this is the percentage of our kids treated with morphine from 2003 to 2010. So that is 175 cases, and we had four of them that were not treated with morphine. Two of those, the mother was on two and a half milligrams of methadone. The normal dose doesn't really go below 30. These are moms who sort of wean themselves off. So those don't really even count. So that's it. Each of those points is not 100%, which is one per year. So this is what our NICU looks like. This is a picture of our actual NICU. That's Ian Gross, who's a, uh, the, the section head, and Emma Shaw Pinter. These guys have been here since the 70s, and that was one of our fellows. So as you can see, it's a nice, bright, bustling place. Um, we have uh, kind of the old school uh, NICU. We have four big rooms with 12 beds each. So they're sort of, you line all the babies up. It's great, you round right in the middle, just like this. Um, and there's lots of beeping, there's lots of commotion. They've spent a lot of effort trying to, trying to do uh, 
quality improvement projects to quiet it down a little bit, but it's obviously, there's a lot happening. Um, they, since there's no single rooms the parents visit, but they, they're not, they don't get to stay. And they also can't, you know, they can't come in during rounds either. So there's sort of, there's times of days where they get to visit. And again, these kids are whisked from the delivery room to the NICU. So what's it look like on the floor? As if it always looked like this. But we do have the, the capability. We have single rooms. You can turn the lights out. You can have a quiet. You have much more control over the environment. Um, and as we're taking care of these kids on the floor, we started to notice some other things. And it started to sort of change our mindset a little bit. So if you have, and you guys have probably experienced this, with whether the parents are, are there or not, makes a big difference. So you'll see a kid whose who's NAS scores will be five and six and six and five and four and six and six. And then one night, the mother doesn't show up and scores 14. And so I so started to think, all right, so does this kid, kid now need more morphine or does this kid need more mom? And it sort of becomes, when you start to think about it in some ways, like, listen, I know you just really need a hug, but I'm going to give you some morphine instead. So <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a little bit tricky. And, and it, you start to think about, so why do, we not, why do we not take these treatment approaches seriously? And if you look back at those studies, what would be interesting to see is how they controlled all these studies that looked at medication, how they control for parental involvement and the environment. And I can tell you, I have not found one that has even mentioned either of those things. So I think we have a lot of trouble. Um, the idea that, particularly if you're an ICU doctor and putting kids on ECMO, the idea that that um, turning, dimming the lights and hugging a kid is, is actual real treatment, it doesn't really seem doctory enough. I think so. It's sort of it's kind of ignored, and it's not. So I so when I read these, I have trouble reading these studies now because they're all just they focus on the medication and we try this med and this med with no idea what's going on with the rest of the treatment. So so I. So when you look and say, well, this, this one it looks like this one worked a lot better than this one, I, 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 I don't even know how to read them anymore. None of them talk about that. It's only now that you're starting to see articles coming out looking at rooming in and breastfeeding. And they all have, it all seems sort of obvious. And those, when the parents room in, the kids do better. When they breastfeed, the kids do better. It sort of seems a little bit obvious. But, so, but here we are at this point. So now I got this idea. I say, well, I think there's a, I think there's a much better way to do this. So, so how do you go from having this idea to making a change? And we got this, this has been, the way we've been doing this has been the same. And I only show back the 2003 because I had trouble getting the other records. But essentially, that's this, we had the same approach for years. So we've been keeping these kids for, for an average of about four weeks. We've been doing the same thing. The well-value nursery doesn't, doesn't have to deal with these kids. They go right to the NICU. The NICU, this, is, this has been mostly a NICU thing for forever. All, all, most of the studies that have come out, certainly in the past, it's only now that we're really getting to to inpatient units, looking at it. So how do you how do you go about making a change? It's not so easy. So I, if I just think if I have this idea, that's great. But there's only I can do kind of what I had already done with the sailboat situation. So how do we go from sails to steam, basically? So I'm going to show you a little video that sort of describes the process a little bit. Um, so we had to go through some of this, and I. So I don't know if anyone's seen this one before. It's only it's only a couple of minutes, but sorry, I'm gonna try to turn it up or okay. I'll just touch it. <clears throat> All right, good introduction again. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, at 10. Well, that's a shame. All right. Um, start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons from it. First, of course, you know, a leader needs the guts to stand out and be ridiculed. 
But what he's doing is so easy to follow. So here's his first follower with a crucial role. He's going to show everyone else how to follow. Now notice that the leader embraces him as an equal. So now it's not about the leader anymore. <laughs> Here he's calling to his friends. And if you notice that the first follower is actually an underestimated form of leadership in itself. It takes guts to stand out like that. The first follower is what transforms a lone nut into a leader. <laughs> and here comes a second follower. Now it's not a lone nut, it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd, and the crowd is news. It must be public. It's important to show not just the leader, but the followers. Because you find that new followers emulate the followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, and immediately after, three more people. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point. Now we've got a movement. <laughs> so notice that as more people join in, it's less risky. So those that were sitting on the fence before now have no reason not to. They won't stand out. They won't be ridiculed. But they will be part of the in crowd if they hurry. <laughs> minute, you'll see all of the uh, those that prefer to stick with the crowd, because eventually they will be ridiculed for not joining in. And that's how you make a movement. But let's recap some lessons from this. So first, if you are the type, like the shirtless dancing guy, that is standing alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals. So it's clearly about the movement, not you. <laughs> okay, but we might have missed the real lesson here. The biggest lesson if you noticed, did you catch it? Is that leadership is over-glorified. The yes, it was the shirtless guy who was first, and he'll get all the credit, but it was really the first follower that transformed the lone nut into a leader. So if we're told that we should all be leaders, that would be really ineffective. If you really care about starting a movement, have the courage to follow and show others how to follow. And when you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first one to stand up and join in and what a perfect place to do that, Ted. Thanks. All right, so guess who gets to be the lone nut in this story? Uh, and I have similar dance moves, which is nice. Uh, but it wasn't, wasn't quite as simple as just sort of uh, showing that I had a good idea. You know, you had, you had a lot of groups that had to get involved. And, and, uh, and the messaging to each group was a little bit different. So, the first, the first, as I as I'm doing my my lone nut thing, the first group to bring on was my fellow hospitals. There's only two other guys, and we're all cut from the same cloth. So just explaining my general thought process with it, they were right on board. And at this point, we uh, I'm no longer on service 50 weeks a year, and I'm no longer on that unit all the time. It's more like I'm on half the time. And as time's gone by, I'm only on that unit about eight weeks out of the year now. So this has to be had to be taken over by the other guys as well. Um, so that was the first group. That was easy. Uh, didn't have to do anything special. And then the next group is to try to get the NICU on board. So the NICU, who again, and these guys have been, they first uh, were publishing on NAS when I was in first grade. Uh, <laughs> so they've been doing it the same way and, and really have an approach. So we actually went for one of the fellows. So somebody who knew and wasn't so engaged in this. And just to explain, somebody who come from a residency program and taking care of these kids and had a little bit of a different perspective. And the truth is, most of the guys in the NICU, this was, you know, they're putting people on ECMO, and they're, this is not, they don't care that, this isn't, isn't their major thing. This is sort of, uh, so they were, they were happy to let her do whatever she wanted. And she felt, we were able to say, look, you can't do the first two things in the treatment. You can't, you have no control over the environment, and, you, and no one can hold these babies. Um, and so, so we got her on board, we got her to start dancing. Um, and then we had to look at our floor nurses. So this was going to be, a, we wanted, we wanted, what we wanted to do was to get these kids to skip the NICU. To, be, to, to come right from the well baby nursery to our unit. So they had to agree that we were gonna, this is something we'd never done before. So our, our, the leadership, we had, to, we had to explain that this was just the right thing to do for these babies and that we could handle it and that we wanna do, you know, we wanna be able to do more. The NICU always thinks that they, whenever they send a, a kid they, they, uh, that has anything wrong, I said, well, this kid's got an NG tube. Can you guys do that on the floor? And we said, yeah, you know, we have stethoscopes and everything. We're really quite something up there. Um, so to get that idea, so, so, so we got to play up on that a little bit. Um, then the, the floor nurses who are taking care of these kids, they knew, that they've been doing this for years, and, and, and to focus, the fact that we're gonna focus on getting the parents there more, uh, that, they know that makes their job easier. So we kind of focused on that for them. The toughest group was the well baby nursery. So for, they've never had to do anything with these children before. 
before. They never even saw them. They went right to the NICU. And so the first group was the leadership. And they, we were trying to become a baby-friendly hospital. And so hard to sell that when your first approach to these kids is to whisk them away from their mother and stick them as far away from their mother as possible. So we got to use that to get the well baby nursery leadership to go, to go for it. But the, the, the nurses who were doing this were really not comfortable with these patients. So what we really wanted to have happen was have them manage to stay with their mother. So if wherever their mother was is where the baby was going to be. But we had to adapt to that a little bit. And um, we agreed that they would, we, they would learn how to do the scoring. And then as soon as they, there were signs of withdrawal, they would send them to the inpatient unit. And so that's, uh, so that's what we did. And that took 18 months to get the well-being nursery to agree to that. And it finally happened um, at the start of 2011. So, so we, we, had, we were now able to provide all three arms of treatment. We were able to control the environment a lot better. We were able to um, focus on more of the soothing techniques. We were able to have parents room in. Um, so that was great. But that's still, uh, so that was a good thing. But it still didn't really change our paradigm as much as we wanted to. The, the next thing that we wanted to tackle was this thing. So. Um, so again, and I think you guys use the same approach with the three scores above eight. We started to examine that a little bit. So it, it, in, in, when you start to see it on the in action, if you look at one of these, it says, all right, if you're sneezing more greater than three to four times per interval. So in other words, if you sneeze two times, fine, you don't need any morphine. But if you sneeze that third time, <laughs> we got to give you some morphine. So that doesn't really sit very well. And, 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 so, and, and there's nothing in, in it that suggests that that the withdrawal symptoms are sequential. So the first thing you get is that you start to be hypertonic. And then as the symptoms get worse, you develop tremors. And then as the symptom gets worse, you start to sneeze. It doesn't, that's never described in, in the, uh, the original paper about that. It's just, they just had a description of, um, of all the signs and symptoms that they, that they could find. And they numbered them by the ones they thought were a little more serious. And so that, that's it. So, and, and so, it, it, it really made us question, then we wanted to look at the foundation. Where does this come from? So, um, and do we really need to use it? So, does, does it, you guys use eight as, a, as your number as well, right? And why, why eight? So, why is eight the, the number? Does anyone know? <laughs> right, so it's never been studied. The threshold number has never been studied. You will not find anything that says that 8 is the right number or 8 compared to 10 or 12. This is it. This is the, this is the foundation of most of the NAS medication treatment in the country, is this paragraph. So this is from the 1975 paper by Loretta Finnegan from a NICU person at, um, in Philadelphia. So the score of 7. They didn't treat because, in our experience, the kid would recover rapidly with swaddling and demand feedings. Their score was eight, we treated. That's it. That's the basis of it. Never been studied, never really been challenged. That's the number that everybody uses. And this is, again, from 29 years ago. So I can say that, um, first of all, we don't just use swaddling and demand feedings. We have, we have a lot of other things we do. And this is, again, a NICU setting. So there's no parental involvement. There's no early response to cry here. There's no, there's no holding the kids. Um, there, there's no control of the environment. So we do a lot more. And I can tell you from my experience that, th that these kids with scores a lot higher than eight recover as well. So, so what we've started to do is when we, have, when we round on these kids, we don't, we, don't, there's no, we don't present the scores. So we, we're, we're trying to look at it a little bit differently. Um, which, so what, what's our goal in treating these kids? It's not, it's not to keep the score below something. It's not to make them sneeze one time less. So we want them, we want them to go home. So what's the, I try to think, what's the, what's the second worst place for these kids to be? Second worst place is on the floor. It's on the inpatient unit. We have some control of the environment, but when I showed you that picture of the nice quiet crib, I, you guys have been up in the hospital before, right? So it's not exactly like that all the time. Uh, it's not comfortable. It's not home. There's not a lot of family support. It's usually you have if there's somebody there, and the, and and this is not always uh, the the easiest parental group to deal with necessarily. Um, so it's, this isn't the best place for them, and the, the, that's the second worst place. And of course, the worst place is the NICU because we can't we don't even have the families there. We can't even do the first treatments. The best place for these kids 
is home. And so why are we treating them with medication? So this is, and this is, remember, I, I sort of poked fun at the AAP recommendations. This comes right from there. The AAP does not recommend using the scoring tools for treatment like this. They look for, they look the same way. What are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to keep this kid, these kids from, from getting into trouble, basically. Can, so what we look at, very simply, can they be calmed down? So when we use the true treatments, the treat, and we consider this a treatment. It's not that we are, we are having, uh, we're controlling the environment and having this early response to cry and holding and rocking the patients. That we're trying to do that to prevent treatment. That is the treatment. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we message this to the families. That's the treatment. And so when we're, and, and so when we're doing that, if we're able, if your score is 12, but when we pick you up and we hold you and we can calm you down and you can eat. That's it, that's what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to accomplish that you can live like a baby. If you can do that, whatever your score is, then we're fine. We do use, the, those scoring tools are really useful for the well baby nurse because they can say, yes, this baby's having withdrawal. And to me, that's what it tells you, this baby's having withdrawal. And otherwise, that's not, I don't think it's valuable. And so we really moved away from that as well. And suddenly that, that, makes, a, that makes a big difference. Um, so, so what's our new approach? Our new approach at this point is that we, um, when the babies are born, they do not go right to the NICU, they go to the well baby nursery. When they first have, have signs of withdrawal, they're supposed to be sent to the inpatient unit. Now, what's happened is, there's times where the inpatient unit is full, so the babies go to the NICU, and there's other times where they'll have, um, they'll have some grunting or respiratory stress early on, and they'll go to the NICU. And so the NICU ends up taking care of a fair amount. What we get there is actually a kind of a natural experiment. So we get to see these same kids who are sort of, some, some because they have some issues, but others that are basically randomly selected to either go to the NICU or to the floor. But ideally, we want to get them to the floor as soon as we can. And then we, um, we've sort of softened the wording of our protocol that, that when you have this, the scores, it's all you may consider doing this instead of you, that this is what you do. Um, we, start, we start morphine. We start clonidine when the symptoms aren't controlled well. And so in other words, when they can't eat and not gain weight, because I feel like gaining weights are, if they can't can eat, then we gotta give them enough calories to gain weight. So can they eat and can they calm down? If they can't do one of those two things, then we say the first two prongs of treatment haven't worked well, and then we're gonna go to the third one and we're gonna start medication. Um, and this is how we message it to the family. It's not that we want you to do these things so we don't have to treat the kids. You being here is the treatment. And so we've had a lot of success getting families to stay a lot more. If you can't be there, can your mother come? Can somebody else come? Somebody needs to be with this baby. This is the treatment. We still have on our, um, on our protocol, that if, if, these, if you extend through this, the, the morphine isn't working well, that phenobarbital is on the list. And I can tell you in seven years, uh, I can count on these fingers the number of times I've used phenobarbital. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't like the concept of it because this is when we're using uh, morphine for opiate withdrawal or clonidine, it's, a speci it's specifically treating the, the mechanism of withdrawal. Phenobarbital is, is a central nervous system depressant. So I try to think of it, now I, I only do inpatient medication now, but when we're giving this to, a, we have this irritable kid, so we're gonna give him phenobarbital. Um, so if there's any outpatient doctor, so when you have kids with colic, at what, what point do we, do we start the phenobarbital in those kids? Because my, my first kid was uh, scored well above, no, no opiate exposure. He was a handful, and, and I, 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 this helped change my mind. I said, if this kid was in the hospital, there was no doubt we'd be giving him all sorts of drugs. <laughs> and I don't think that's the right way to go. And so I, I've always been very uncomfortable with the phenobarbital. When the kids come up from the NICU on it, that's the first thing we get rid of. I don't really want any part of that. And, there, and the it's hard to know what the outcomes are. There are those studies showing that you can lose IQ points from that. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure this, the, the outcomes for all of these things are really un, untested. Um, but for me, I feel like the burden is on proving that the medications are safe rather than that they're not. It's a self-limited process. So we need, to, we need to support the babies through it. This is sort of, this is, this is kind of the kind of thing that Dr. Ralston for the hospital community is sort of a lone nut in terms of doing much, much less. And so and she's got lots of followers now too. Um, so I think it kind of fits that, but I don't want to think about this as doing less. These things are the treatment. That is the treatment right there. It's not something to prevent treatment. Um, so, so what happens? We do have situations where the family can't be there, right? And so either 
you know, we have kids who are going right into foster care. The parents don't want anything to do with it. We have families where they don't have support at home. They have two other kids, so the, the parents can't stay there all the time. Sometimes they just don't stay, and that, that's a really frustrating thing. But we're, we're finding, the way we're messaging this, we have a lot less. We feel like we're able to empower the parents more. That, and there's oftentimes these parents have a lot of guilt with, what's, with what they've done to their kid, and letting them know that they have the power to fix it, it has been really helpful. Um, so if the parent can't be there, so then what becomes the most important part of treatment? Any guesses? That's these people. So, so we know all these people very well, and we go and we say, you are the treatment for this kid. And so that empowers them, and then suddenly we, got, we, have, a line, we have people lining up to take care of these kids. So that's sort of that's sort of our real focus on that. Um, I have my my new favorite uh, quote for, for for NAS care is this: "You have everything your baby needs." Does anyone know where that's from? Nobody. Is Dr. Whalen here? You don't know where that's from? <laughs> that's from you guys. <laughs> So you guys have, yeah, I think you wrote it. So, so I think, uh, you know, the, the approach that you guys have with this whole, you, you in, in a lot of ways, you guys are way ahead of us with, with looking at these, looking at these families long before birth is really a tremendous way, and this document is is fabulous, mm -hmm. and it really talks about empowering them. The only thing I would, we want to empower them as much as possible, and that the and the message is that this is you are treating them by holding them. Um, so, so let's look at let's look at how this turned out for us. So, if you remember, so we, we looked at this in the beginning. So we had that original length of stay of 28 days, and then we uh, around the start of 2006 or mid 2006, we had the clonidine, and we were a little more aggressive with the weans, and we had that big drop. And then uh, we kind of held on there a little bit. We got a little more aggressive at times, and then we started to focus on this non-pharmacological management. We started transfer directly into the well baby nursery, and we, we reduced our length of stay to 14 days. Now, I, sh I showed this in the beginning, but I undersold it a little bit. So as I mentioned, we had this natural experiment where some of the kids went to the NICU and some went to the floor. So let's see what it looks like then. So the blue is the ones that went right to the floor. So that's our median length of stay. So median length of stay now uh, this year was eight days for methadone-exposed kids. Uh, and if you can see the NICU kids, the approach to the NICU, the NICU, uh, most of the NICU docs are still sitting on the hill. They're not dancing yet. So their, their approach has not changed at all. So their decrease in length of stay doesn't really have a lot to do with their approach. They're still looking at it the same way. We get these kids who come upstairs who are started on medication that we would never have started on medication. Um, but they, that's their only mode of treatment down there. If we, if we kind of break this out more, just looking at the last three years, because again, this is where we, we started to have a change. You have a median of a length of stay of eight days, and, and if they go to the NICU first, a median of 17 days, and the, the time they spend in the NICU is usually, is on average about eight days. Some of them come up in a couple of days. Yes? Did you um, control for comorbidity, or is it, are these patients just went to the NICU because they were full? That's a great question. So here's the ones who went just because they're full. So and the ones that went who had issues, they had all resolved within one day. So it didn't. So this is the ones that we control for that. So this is the average length of stay. So, so the median was eight. The average for the floor is ten days, um, and for the um, for the NICU is still about the same. And what we when I looked over the last uh, three years, the number of times that we increased the dose of morphine on the floor, anyone want to guess? Zero. Zero. Yes. So the maximum dose was always in the NICU for a kid transferred up there. Um, so, and again, I showed you this, the number of kids that we ended up treating with morphine. And I believe that, I believe when you're exposed to methadone that all of these kids have withdrawal symptoms. And if you are hypertonic and your score is a five, that's still, that's, a, that's not a normal baby response, that hypertonicity. That is a, that is a withdrawing kid. So I don't think that, that there, there are in the normal range, um, you can have kids who are sort of colicky kids score as high as as seven is what one of the studies has shown it can still be normal even as high as eight. But there are some of these symptoms that are a little more specific to kids going through withdrawal. So I believe that this is probably true, that, that if you leave all of these kids alone to their own devices and don't, don't really do the first two treatments, I think this is probably the right thing. I think about pretty much 100% of them will show withdrawal symptoms. So this is through 2010 when we started coming to the floor. This is the number of kids we treated. Remember, there was 
four out of 107 that we didn't. And now it looks like this. So now we're down to treating only about 75% of them. But again, this is all comers. Let's look at, again, the ones that go to the NICU first versus the one that go to the floor. So the NICU still treats 100% of them. And we're down to treating, this is again methadone exposed. So if you, if you take all comers, it's much lower than this. This is 55% of the methadone kids reach, uh, only have failure of the first two treatment prongs. Um, and again, we treat 100% of the kids still. We treat 100% of them. We only treat 55% of them with morphine, but we treat 100% of them. And so this, you can see, is what you would expect. The, we're basically, uh, when they start on the floor, that's pretty much our loading dose of morphine. And we don't really, we, but we, and we didn't expect this. When they first came to the floor, we're used to these kids coming up on 0 0.4, 0 0.5, 0 0.6 of morphine pretty regularly. And we, we, we were like, all right, we'll just follow the same protocol. We hadn't done this before. And we found that we would start the loading dose, the, the, the starting dose, and that was it. And we never really had to go up. And you can see that it's almost, at times, it's almost twice as much um, morphine used in the NICU. So that, these are our methadone kids. Um, and if you look at our, I know you guys have a lot of Subutex and Suboxone kids. So we don't have quite as many. Um, from 2008 to 2013, we had 10 kids who went to the NICU um, initially. And they all, again, again, came up to the floor. And we had 17 who went directly to the floor. Guess how many of those 10 ended up getting treated with morphine? 10, that's right. And of the ones who came to the floor, that's an average length of stay of five days for those 17 kids. And there was only six of them that were treated with morphine. Um, and so, and that's obviously, that's a big change. And we're seeing more of these kids, and, 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 and you're seeing them as well. They, they, are, they do a lot better than the methadone kids. And that's what the literature is showing as well. But I think even our rates of treatment are a little bit below what you tend to see in the literature. And it's just a rate of, sorry, the rate of treatment with morphine, because we treat all of them. And, this is a group that I think some of them don't necessarily show signs of withdrawal. I, do, I am convinced that all of the methadone kids withdraw. So, so that's sort of the change in our approach. So, um, so to sort of sum up, and this is, uh, I've been avoiding talking to my college roommate who's a naturopath, but I, I feel like he'd be really proud of that first one. <laughs> hugs, hugs before drugs. So I think that's really been the most important thing. It's really simple, and it's really basic, and when you start to think about it, it makes a ton of sense. Like, we, we take these kids away and put them, in a, put them in a situation where they can't be treated like babies. They're, these are the kids who need their mothers the most. They need, they need this love the most, and we, we take them down to the NICU, and I don't, you're, I don't know what you're, I think you don't have rooming in in your NICU, and we, we remove that for the kids who really are most, most desperately needed. And I think that's, a, that's a, an important thing to, to think about. And empowering the families, and not just that, that they have the power to prevent treatment, but they are the treatment for these kids, and we, we firmly believe that. And then the other thing, sort of, if you're not into the NAS thing, is just challenging these accepted practices. So we have, there's all these things that have been kind of going on forever. And if you look at the way we, we look at these scoring tools and look at the, it's a very wobbly foundation for these scoring tools. And I think that we have felt very free by going away from these. And I, I'd recommend looking at that practice as well and what we're really gaining by, by getting this eight. That's not the goal. The goal should not be a number. The goal should be, it should be a patient-centered approach. And the goal is, it, can this kid function because the longer we, when you have these kids here for four weeks, I don't think they're withdrawing still from the methadone. They're withdrawing from the morphine we've given them. So the, the sooner we can get them out of here, the sooner the better. And start, if you find something like this, if you find something where you challenge it, then start a movement, start dancing, see who follows. All right, and so these are all people who sort of help with this. This was, a, these are some of oh, the rest of the dancers. Um, yes. Beyond the culture of just medicalizing in the NICU, um, I'm a nurse in the NICU, and I worked in, at Boston City Hospital, it was still Boston City Hospital, and in 1990, <laughs> all we did was shift it just to the newborn nursery, and the nurses don't dislike crying as much. Right. And we follow oh, yeah. even by virtue of that, because the NICU nurses are like, ah, right. anymore. NICU nurses will not have it. Yeah, we know the same. I think that's universal. Yeah. Right. Why does this kid not have a tooth? Yeah. Yeah, it is not the right place. The NICU, I find, I, I'm not sure why they, oh, this is, it's, I'm, it's, you know, if we, if we thought about it, if we, they'd ever went to the NICU and we were starting over, I'm not sure that we would ever even consider sending these kids to the NICU. I mean, They're not. It would be a seizure, frankly, and how many kids seize? So, what? yeah, so the, the, you'll see published that 2 to 11% seize. The latest uh, publication for that is 1977. 
Um, so I see we've we've we're on a rate of zero seizures of, of and we have almost 400 kids, so we haven't had any seizures yet. So I'm sure it could happen, but we also take care of seizures on the floor, right? <laughs> so I'm not sure why that's an issue. I think if you started over, there would there would be no reason to send these kids to the NICU, right? I don't. They're not. Like you said, you want to put a tube in everybody. They're doing ECMO in the NICU. They don't need to take care of these crying kids. It's the wrong place. It's not. So I think that's another practice to sort of think about. And that's what we need to do. We have a, we're not done. We're still in our process. And we need to stop getting all those kids to go to the NICU still. And they need to, and when they go to the NICU for a reason, they need to get the heck out of there. So before, before we get to questions, uh, Steve, if you would want to address the underlying, there's a, a type of oil program. Um, sure. Um, just a shameless plug. We're, uh, uh, the oil program is sponsoring uh, a movie and an evening discussion. There's a, a, a movie called The, the Hungry Heart, and Alan Budeska has helped. Uh, coordinate this. It's a story of uh, prescription addiction in Vermont, and we'll be filming that here February 27th in the evening, and we'll have the principals who are in that movie here for a discussion afterwards that will be moderated at Nordstrom. Um, so that will be another opportunity to engage in this topic. And ben Nordstrom is the head of the ISP. And a DMS grad. So thank you for for a wonderful talk. I mean, this is a great. This topic is a great example of how the health of the baby, the health of the child, is predicated on the health of the mother, and then the connection that forms. Um, with that in mind, what is your approach to the topic of breastfeeding? Oh, so we are we are we push breastfeeding big time. So um, I think for a couple of reasons. So first of all, it's cheating a little bit because there is some a little bit of methadone gets into it. So you see these kids do way better, and that's the, the literature supports that. But it also goes with the whole concept of we want, we want the parents involved. We want them engaged. We want them locked in. We want them holding the kid. And so we, we push that quite a bit. And, there, and the, you, there used to be a limit. They said the methadone dose was above, I think it was 110, or, or that, that you, didn't, you, didn't, you weren't supposed to breastfeed. And that's all gone away. So breastfeeding, we, are, we push breastfeeding, absolutely. Dr. Kittredge, I think, was next. I'd love to have you. I'm sick of hearing about cost of care all the time, and I love <laughs> your talk. But I wonder if cost of care actually drove the system to stay the way it was for a long time. And maybe more money was earned by the babies getting into the NICU. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> and I think it would add to our understanding about how things are perpetuated to actually comment on that. Could tell me a little bit more about what happened to the hospital revenues uh, so that so I, that's a good question. I don't really so almost all of these kids are, have state insurance, and for for us in Connecticut for a while we were the the 49th in reimbursement, so I think we got 17 cents on the dollar. And so I think probably getting these kids out of the hospital might have been a help. But I do think that the kids would stay in the NICU longer because they had space and they had empty you know there 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 were there ebbs and flows of it, and when they had more space they started to hold on to these kids longer. But I can tell you, so I, I don't really know that, but I can tell you, if you look at, we've had 60 kids in the last three years who have gone directly to the floor. And if you compare that to how we managed them in 2005 and 2006, we've saved over 1,000 patient days. So um, whether and where that goes in the money, but I think we're usually looking to decrease length of stay for these kids. But I, I think there's probably something to that, of keeping census up in the NICU, at least where, where we are. And probably there's a cut, at least if it's an insured or Medicaid reimburses, it's probably better for the hospital to give methadone or, or to give an opiate rather than to give hub. And I think yeah, I don't think you bill you can bill as much for the hubs. As far as I, can tell. No, I don't know. That's a good question. But what's nice is I, I, I've sort of purposely stayed uninvolved in that as much. But I will I'll present this to our op because I want we need to drive our NICU. This is not this is the wrong thing to do for the babies as far as I'm concerned to keep them in the NICU. Um, Hi, I'm pediatric nurse. I wanted to know how you support the families when they're on the inpatient unit. Um, so we uh, I think we can do a better job with that. We. Do, we very much encourage them to stay. We, as I told you, we really, we really sort of sell it, um, and we try to, we try, we, pro, you know, we provide meals for them, um, and we. But there's, a, there's, a, there's a limit we can do sometimes, and some of them don't want to be there. So, um, but we, I don't, we don't have a real big program for it. We just try to make it as comfortable as we can. Make sure they get a single room. Make sure the place is comfortable. They're going to be staying for a little while. 
Um, but we don't have a real great program for that, which is why you guys are, are really ahead of the game. How about staff here at Complex? That, that has gotten a lot better, I think, and since, since, we've, since we've gotten our staff involved in terms of, of that this is the treatment and they, they're seeing that these kids are coming in and coming out much more quickly. So that was more of a, that was a problem a lot more when I started, but now that we're sort of, we feel like we're working with the families because we, we understand that they, we, it's not just us telling the families, we believe that's the treatment. So we, we wanna, the more they can be there, the less the, you know, you have the picture of the nurse walking around with the kid at night. That's not, that doesn't, <laughs> It's not good for anybody. So, and you think about when the when the parent isn't there, you got a nurse with with five patients. The kid starts to cry. It snowballs, and you know if you can't tend to the kid quickly, then the withdrawal the withdrawal symptoms are going to rise quickly. And so the, the nurses know they don't want to walk around all night because then that's when you lose the environment. And uh, so so they 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 know that this is helping them a lot too. So that's that's been really helpful. Is looking this is they're they're this is a win win situation. That's kind of been the way, the way, to, the way for us. Um, thank you for that excellent talk. I'm going to follow up with um, Bridget's question. How do you support the families as they transition to the outpatient environment? Because I'm an outpatient doc, so I get these kids after you discharge them, and they're 10 days old, and they've moved back into the chaotic, let me just say, yep. living environment. Um, do you, how much do you work with Child Protective Services, your local agencies, the local community docs who take care of them afterwards? So for, uh, for, the, for the moms who are in programs and in good standing, then there's not a Child Protective Services part of it. Social Work's heavily involved in all the kids. If there's any issues uh, in their program or they're not in a program, then, then they need to get clearance from our Child Protective Services. Um, we, we try to get the pediatricians to come in if they can. Most of, the, most of these folks are local. To, to meet the family and to uh, and to understand, and we, and we have had, we've actually had um, four readmissions over the last three years with this, and they're almost all related to not. That's something we need to work on more. I think we need to get the outpatient folks because some of them, you know, we had one kid readmitted because they were irritable, and then we opened up the diaper, and they had a diaper rash. And we put triple paste on and sent the kid home two hours later. It's that you know understanding what the pediatricians had to because they're not taking care of these kids anymore and don't know. If it's irritable, but that's also another thing that, that the AAP points out in terms of using medication. So you think about the message that that sends is that you got if your kid is in any discomfort or is annoying at all, then the answer is give them medication, and that's probably not something that we want to tell anybody, much less sort of a group that's that's dealing with a, with addiction, that sort of the solution. And and we saw that our, our latest readmission exactly that, and the kid was was cranky. And so it got sent back in and, and expected that the answer was more medication. So I think we have a lot of work. I think I don't have the, I don't have a great answer. I think that's something we're working on too. So Dr. Wynn, Dr. Christman is giving you props. Do you want to update us on where we are? So those of us who aren't from the normal nursery or the ward or the here, what our program looks like? Well, we're right now we're piloting a program partnering with the treatment program at Riverville. Sarah Ackman is a psychiatrist who has um, a Northern license and is treating up to 35 pregnant women. And we're partnering with them, as for me, as the pediatrician going over and doing prenatal education and providing kind of intensive education about how to prepare for their babies, what to expect with NAS, what it looks like, how they can help the babies doing skin to skin, breastfeeding, and moms are asking which they are in this, this program primarily. And then really preparing to be with their baby at least two weeks um, after birth if the baby does have withdrawal and saying that it's likely that the baby is going to have some signs of withdrawal, but about a half of the baby's going to treatment. And really for us doing a lot of staff education, getting consistency and getting a scoring, and then having the staff score the babies while they're with their mothers um, on the mother's chest, skin to skin, having them breastfeed first, and then having um, the family call out to ask the nurse to come in for them and then doing it more baby friendly in terms of doing it around the baby schedule and not on every four hours and waking them up and then scoring them they do the same those kind of and so far it's going well I think and then we're doing also the treatment on with this cohort of moms in pediatrics rather than the ICM recognizing that that's an overstimulating least desirable environment but I think a lot of what we need to do is educating staff and really I think focusing on kind of trauma-informed care. A lot of these women have a history of sexual abuse, physical abuse, they have depression, anxiety, PTSD, and really how do you work with families like that? Because in pediatrics, we don't have a lot of education and experience with that. Thank you. 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 Thank you
We've had the same experience, yeah, and when they come right there, we, we see a lot more of the families. We have a lot less of that, where they disappear for hours on end. So I'll give Donald a little last word, but invite those who have further questions to come down and then ask that. Uh, thanks for raising